Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Hey, good morning, everyone. How we doing? Hey, I appreciate that. Whether you're here with us or you're joining us online, we're excited that you're with us this morning. Happy 4th of July uh, weekend. Last uh, firework I heard was around 1 a.m. Anybody beat that? No? Woke me up? Oh, no? It was you? It was, okay. Uh, man, it was a war zone uh, last night. But uh, great opportunity to, uh, to celebrate our freedoms that we both enjoy as Christians uh, as well as uh, Americans. On top of that, we are indeed an incredibly blessed group of people uh, who get to enjoy both of those things where honestly very few people do. Um, so I, uh, I, I hope that you get the opportunity to celebrate all the things. If you haven't yet, celebrate them today. Uh, just make sure you're done with the fireworks by 10. Um, because I'm a little sleepy, uh, but we're, uh, we're starting a brand new series this week, uh, and we are going to be walking through the book of Galatians, and I'm actually incredibly excited about launching this series on 4th of July weekend, because as we take a deeper look, we're going to see one of the defining characteristics of Paul's letter uh, is the idea of Christian freedom. And actually, when I was when I was younger, every 4th of July, uh, I would go to my parents, or I would go with my parents and my grandparents uh, to the Atwater Parade. I grew up in Atwater. There's actually a photo of it uh, up there. Um, that's me and some of my cousins there. I'm the uh, really cute one, second from the left uh, up there. And uh, so we would go every year. It was a few blocks away from my grandparents' house, the parade route was. And so uh, we would go to my grandparents' house and my grandpa uh, was a lifelong Air Force. He actually started his career there, ended his career in the Air Force. My dad was in the Navy. And so we would go uh, to my grandparents' house and we would walk the couple blocks that it took to get us over to the, uh, to the parade route. And uh, on the way, uh, my grandpa would talk about kind of his time uh, in, in the military. My grandma would talk about her time, uh, you know, being obviously married to my grandpa uh, in the military because those are two very different things. Um, and I just, I remember learning quite a few things uh, as I was growing up and even going to that parade. Um, you know, we'd go and we'd sit and, you know, obviously social distancing wasn't a thing. Uh, then and we would go and we would sit and and the old cars would come through right and um, then after the old cars there'd be fire trucks and police cars and floats and all this stuff Um, but I remember growing up that as the colors came by this was an opportunity for my grandpa for my dad to be able to teach us what it is that you are supposed to do as the colors come by so we stood up removed our hats hand over the heart wait for them to pass right and then we're able to sit down so I remember learning that Uh, I remember learning at this parade that uh, some of the best meat that you'll ever eat is actually found on a stick Um, There was this great little uh, shop. I have no clue if they sold anything outside of the 4th of July parade. But I do know that they were in the same spot every single year. I don't know what kind of meat it was. I don't know what kind of stick it was on. But it was some of the best meat that I've ever eaten in my entire life. So I remember uh, learning about that. And I learned through all of this, meat and the colors, uh, that I should be thankful for my freedoms as an American. I remember growing up and and thinking those things and learning from my grandpa and learning from my dad about all of these different things. You know, see, before I never questioned those freedoms. 
Never had to question any of those freedoms. If I'm being honest, I've probably taken some of those freedoms for granted in my life. Because other people actually are the ones who fought and died for those freedoms, for my freedoms as an American. I never had to do anything to earn those freedoms outside of simply being born in America. They're my freedoms, they're our freedoms, and actually a lot of us in this room today, a lot of us online, we did nothing to gain that freedom. I know there are many of you who have sacrificed, that you were in the armed forces, to which I'm grateful. But really, for most of us, we simply showed up on the scene in America, and because of our citizenship, we are free. And this is in many ways what the Apostle Paul is going to write about to the church in Galatia. He's going to write about this citizenship. But for most of us, like I said, we just kind of showed up. But rather than talking about our citizenship here in America, our citizenship here on earth, Paul actually tackles the issue of our citizenship in heaven. He talks about our freedoms, which are freedom that is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And so when I talk about the idea that I'm excited to launch into this series in Galatians on this 4th of July weekend, I am because this is talking about the idea of ultimate freedom, the ultimate freedom that we find, find on top of the freedom that we have as Americans. Because I think for most believers, we don't necessarily recognize the narrative that the Bible is actually trying to put forth here. And if we do recognize that narrative, oftentimes like me with some of my American freedoms, maybe we, we take them for granted from time to time. You know, for a lot of us, we probably hadn't thought about our right to peaceably assemble until a few months ago. Right? Until a few months ago, really, you could walk into any store as long as it was open and you weren't breaking and entering or anything like that. You could walk in any store. You didn't have to wear a mask. You didn't have to, you know, stay six feet away from, from people who were around you or anything like that. You could probably walk up to any product you wanted and lick it and no one would say anything about it. I mean, those are just, I mean, you could just peaceably assemble, right? Before, before that, before a few months ago, really, we did our best to pack as many people into church as we possibly could. And we're shaking hands, and we're hugging, and we're giving out food, and we're passing plates, and we're doing all of this stuff that we used to do. And now we're like, hey, hold on. Okay, there's a hundred of you, so we're going to go ahead and stop that service there. Like, we are actively trying to tell people to know, spread out, don't come to church all at one time. Right? Communion is now in these little prepackaged cups. And that way nobody's touching anything. Like this idea of being able to assemble, to peaceably assemble, we have probably taken that freedom quite a bit for granted. We've taken a lot of freedoms for granted as Americans. But what we are going to learn over the next several weeks is the greatest freedom we have, greater than anything put forth in the Constitution, greater than any law that was ever written by man, is the freedom that we have in Christ greater than any of that. And for some of you, that, that phrase freedom in Christ may actually seem kind of strange, but we can very simply define freedom in Christ as no longer being bound to the law. We're no longer being bound to the law. And so the law here specifically, we're going to get into it, it's going to be talking about some Old Testament stuff, but the phrase freedom in Christ largely comes from John eight thirty six. It says, so if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Freedom in the Son, freedom in Christ really is what this is talking about. So this gets us to the crux of what Galatians is all about. Freedom from the law. 
And I'm not talking like, hey, if you're a Christian, you can go 120 down Dowdy Street, and once you get pulled over, you can show them your Bible, and you're like, oh, no, you're good. You go ahead. You have freedom in Christ. You go ahead. That's not obviously the freedom from the law that we're talking about. We're talking about the Mosaic law that was instituted from God in the Old Testament. That, that term Mosaic law, people can find it kind of intimidating. Mosaic, the root there is Moses, right? And so it's the law that was handed down to Moses, the Mosaic law. So here what we're going to do is we need today to really set the scene for the, re- for the next several re- weeks in the book of Galatians. Because Galatians was written for a very specific purpose to a very specific group of people. So we're going to take the next couple minutes, we're going to get up to 30,000 feet, we're going to view theology like we're going to start at Genesis, we're going to go all the way through to where Paul is talking about in Galatians. We, we need to elevate our sight lines for a few minutes to be able to understand why he's writing it. So let's go back to Galatians, or not Galatians, Genesis is the book that it's called. Genesis chapter 1. So we have a holy God, right? And hopefully this is review for a lot of you, but we need to understand this. We have a holy God, right? And so, so we have a holy triune God. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And they're just existing, okay? And then they decide, hey, it, it, we are going to actually create Mankind. We're going to create the cosmos. We're going to create the universe. We're going to create mankind eventually. And that's largely Genesis 1 and 2. And everything they create, they say, hey, this is good. And then they get to man and they say, hold on, this is very good. Man is the pinnacle of God's creation. Okay, this is the cherry on top of everything else. So you can go to whatever gorgeous place you want. Actually, right now you're not supposed to. But if you were allowed to go to any gorgeous place that you wanted to go to, Think about that and think about how beautiful it is. And you thought, stop and think to yourself, hold on, but that's not the pinnacle of God's creation. God's imagination, like this creation that he made, this isn't the pinnacle. No, we are. Mankind is. And it talks about that in Genesis 1 and 2. But what happens then is that, that God sets out a very, some very, like one very basic rule for Adam and Eve. Right? And Adam and Eve, they get prideful and they decide they want to be more like God. And so because of that, they break the one rule that God told them not to break. And so then sin enters into the world in Genesis chapter 3. And because of that sin, everything from that point forward is broken. Everything is. So what we need to remember then at this point is that God's most defining attribute is holiness. Remember I talked about a holy God. A lot of people, they would say that when they're uh, uh, describing God, they would say God is what? Love, right? Love is oftentimes the characteristic that comes to people's mind when we're talking God is love. Actually, I would argue that God, yes, while God is love and and his love is perfect and all of that stuff, God's most defining attribute is actually holiness. Because everything that God does is actually defined by his holiness. The fact that he is set apart, that's what that word holy means. And so when we're talking about how God loves, God has a holy love. We talk about God's justice, he has a holy justice. We're talking about God's wrath, he has a holy wrath. Another way for us to say holiness is perfect, right? And so because of the fact that God is holy, because of the fact that God is set apart, once sin entered into the world, he does not allow sin to be near him because of the fact that he's holy, because of the fact that he is set apart. So the entire Old Testament is comprised then of the various pathways that God has given us sinners, sinful people, 
It's comprised of that, uh, or it's comprised of ways for us to be able to get back to God, for us to be able to come to become more holy. The first of which, the first way that we can do that is by following the law. He handed it down to Moses, like I said, but then beyond the law, he sent the prophets, and beyond the prophets, he sent the kings, and beyond the kings, he sent the judges. They were all put into place to allow people to see their pathway back to God, their pathway back to holiness so they could be reconciled back to God. The law continued through the entire Old Testament and even through the Gospels before God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Like it continued all the way through there. So when we focus on the law, we want to focus on the law because that is what every good Jew would do their best to follow in order to show their devotion to God and get to heaven. So the original law is the Ten Commandments. Original law, the Ten Commandments were handed down to Moses, the leader of the Israelites. The law is defined by all Jews as, by, by what they refer to as the Torah. The Torah, we know, we call it the first five books of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the law. That's how it's referred to. These five books of the law are what the entirety of the Jewish faith is based off of, those first five books of the Bible. It actually came to be respected even by people who were non-Jews because of the fact that it had been around for so long. They respected it because of its antiquity and its comprehensive kind of fairness. Even by the time Jesus had showed up on the scene, right? We say Jesus was around 2,000 years ago. By the time Jesus showed up on the scene, the law had already been around for 1,000 years. And so it is widely respected by, by, by not just Jewish people, but by Gentiles alike because of how old it had been, because of how fair it had been. It had guided them in every aspect of human activity for so long that the Jews actually found it difficult to conceive of life without the law. And that's actually going to be an incredibly important point as we look at the book of Galatians. Because as we look at the book of Galatians, what we see is we have people who are Jewish who are not able to let go of the law that they are used to following. So simply stated, the law was set out in the first five books of the Bible. All of the things written in the law are great for morality, they're great for right living, but none of it is necessary for gaining eternal glory. And that's something that we need to remember. As a quick side note, okay, if that's true, and I believe that that's true, as a quick side note, people oftentimes look at the law, they see how impossible the law seems to be able to understand it, right, to be able to follow it rather, not understand it, but to be able to follow it. Like if you sin this way, you have to do this, you have to kill this animal, you have to walk between different things, right? Like it's crazy what they had to do. I mean, if you want to look at some like crazy law stuff, some crazy lawful stuff back in the Old Testament, man, go look, go look up Leviticus 17, right? Your mind will be blown by some of the stuff that people had to do in order to gain favor back with God. But, but they had, like the law just seemed absolutely impossible, to follow. And so when people look at that, when the Jews looked at that, they were like, man, this is, there's no way. There's no possible way I'm ever going to be able to get into heaven if my responsibility is to follow that. If, it, 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 like, like if that's the only way I can get there, it's, it's impossible. So people will ask the question, okay, how then did people get to heaven before Jesus came onto the scene? And this is a quick sidebar, okay? So the way that people got to heaven before, have you thought about this? Anybody thought about this before? Like how is this possible if Jesus is the Savior of the world? How do people go to heaven before 
he came onto the scene? Well, we can actually find out that answer. It's in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and it's talking about the father of the Jewish faith, Abraham. Okay? And Abraham actually, it talks about how he got to heaven. It's actually repeated in Romans 4 as well if you want to read it. But it said, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. The he in this sentence is talking about God. So essentially it said, Abram believed the Lord and God credited it to him as righteousness. So how did people get to heaven in the Old Testament before Jesus? They believed in God and their faith was credited to them as righteousness. So in other words, even when the law was laid out, for the Jews to be able to become holy, the only way they were getting into heaven was through what? Faith in God. That's the only way they were getting to heaven still. But I digress. We have to keep going or else we're never going to get through this. So in order to walk through the book of Galatians, the question is, is why do we need to know about the law? I mean, we can talk about Old Testament and all that stuff, but we have to know about the law because the book of Galatians was written as Paul's defense of the gospel, which we should also define that word gospel. Gospel means good news, specifically the good news of Christ's resurrection. So anytime someone says gospel, literally translated, it means good news. So what's happening in the Galatian church then is we have false teachers are coming along behind Paul and they are known as Judaizers, okay? They are teaching that you can't become a Christian unless you also become Jewish, the word Judaizers, it's actually never used in the book of Galatians. We use that word now, but the word means to Judaize or to make Jewish. That's what Judaizer means. Paul uses this reference in Galatians 2.14 as it means to live like Jews. That's what it says in Galatians 2.14. So what we are saying is, or what they are saying is rather, the Judaizers saying is, unless you've placed your faith in Christ as well as have followed the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, become Jewish, then you won't inherit heaven. That's the teaching that's going forth. That's the good news that these people are proclaiming. And the entire book is aimed at Paul telling the Galatian church that they do not have to become Jewish. They do not have to abide by the law because we have freedom that is found in Christ. The only thing you need to do to inherit the kingdom of God is have faith in Christ. That's it. And the entire book of Galatians is a defense set up to explain that. Galatians 2.16 actually tells us that. It says, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. Okay, justified. Justified means to be in right standing. Okay, so to be in right standing with God is what he's talking about here. Know that a person is not in right standing, by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ. We are made in right standing by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. By the things that you do, by the outward expression that you do, the different law-abiding things that you do, you will never be put on right standing with God. It's not going to happen. It's faith-based only. So as we enter into this series, we need to remember that Galatia really is a, a, a region of Gentiles who had become seduced by this teaching of Judaizers, people who wanted to, to make other people Jewish as well as believe in Jesus. And Paul's letter to them is some of the strongest defense of justification through faith alone that we have in the entire Bible. 
That's what all of Galatians is driving, driving towards. In other words, in order to gain salvation, it is Jesus plus nothing. That's what Galatians is driving towards. And, and the Galatian church, they had forgotten that. And I don't totally blame them. You know, it wasn't like where it is now, where it's like, huh, I wonder, I wonder theologically speaking, because this is how you all think uh, while you're at home and that sort of thing. Hmm, what are the theological implications of that? All you have to do is go and find your dusty Bible on the bookshelf, flip it open and say, oh, okay, that's what that means. And then you move forward. The Galatian church didn't have that. The Galatian church had Paul who had set up a church and then he was like, hey, you look like you understand more than most what all of this is talking about. And then he left them in charge and he would leave. Like that's all that they had as the gospel is the oral teaching of Paul. And then on top of that, they of course had their other religious texts, the Torah, if they were Jewish, that they could refer back to. And so when we talk about the idea of the Galatian church being seduced by these Judaizers saying, hey, you need to become Jewish as well as follow Jesus, we can't blame them too deeply because the fact that they had nothing else to, refer, to, to point them to except Paul when he catches wind of what's going on and decides to write a letter to the Galatian church. So Paul had gone to Galatia most likely on one of his missionary journeys that we see back in the book of Acts. Hey, that's, what, that's largely when Paul went there for the first time, which means that Paul was actually the one who was responsible for setting up the church. And so after the church had been set up, you have the figurehead of the church, the guy who's you know, shepherding these people or whatever, there would also be other people, other teachers who would come in, they would allow to come in and teach them about the gospel. And so what happened was, is slowly but surely, there were teachers coming into the church who largely had Jewish roots. And so because of that, these teachers would come in and they would start proclaiming things that weren't true. It was a distortion of the truth. They really had a Judaized mindset. And they said you had to be both Jewish and faith in Christ in order to inherit eternally. Specifically, based on the context of Galatians, we know they were talking mostly about the act of circumcision. Yep, things just got real. But what the Judaizers were mandating for salvation was Jesus plus an outward representation of their commitment. Not an outward, represent, or, or not an outward uh, representation of their commitment to Jesus, but an outward representation of their commitment to the law. And that is a big no-no. And Paul is angry. He has such a massive issue with this and because of that he writes the greatest defense of salvation through faith alone in Christ in the history of the world. So let me give you a quick way to know if what you believe about salvation is true or not okay, according to scripture. Because I'm sure some of you are like, well, I don't know, what is it that I'm supposed to believe, right? Or beyond that, maybe if you, you, you want to know if you or somebody that you love is in a cult or not, right? This is the best way for you to understand if that's true or not. If anyone tells you that you have to believe in Jesus and do something else, you're in a cult or you're wrong. It's one of those two options according to scripture and according to me because I'm saying it this morning. Like those are the two options that we have. If anyone tells you that you have to believe in Jesus and do something else in order to get to heaven, that's called heresy. Heresy is anything that is contrary to the doctrine of the Bible. And so that is a heretic 
teaching. So if I ever tell you you have to do anything to gain salvation apart from believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and profess with your lips that, Christ, or that God raised him from the dead, like if, if I ever say that, you have every single right to drive me out of here as a heretic because we believe in justification through faith alone. Our salvation has nothing to do with us and it has everything to do with God. And the minute that we say you have to believe in Jesus and do something else, we are starting to take credit for our own salvation. That means that we can do something in order to gain favor with God. We can do something in order to gain right standing with God. And it's simply not true. God did it. God took care of it. He's the hero of the story. That's why I consistently say that the Bible is not about us. The Bible is actually about God. Because as soon as we assume our salvation and the work God has done has anything to do with what we have accomplished, then we've turned it into something that we can take credit for. And that is not the case. The only thing that we are responsible for is getting Jesus nailed to the cross in the first place. That's the only thing that we can take credit for regarding our salvation. But let me tell you what this doesn't mean. Being justified by faith alone and having freedom in Christ does not mean that I can continue on with a life of unrepentant sin. It does not mean that. It does not mean that the law doesn't matter. It does not mean that morality goes out the window and you can do whatever you want. What it does mean, though, is that morality doesn't matter to our salvation, but it does matter to our witness. Let me say that again. Morality doesn't matter to our salvation, but it does matter to our witness. It is because of my relationship with Christ and my recognition that he saved me from eternal damnation that I want to live a life that would venture towards holiness that would venture towards sanctification, knowing that, knowing that I can't achieve it, knowing that there's no way that I'm going to be able to achieve it, but in order to please God and live a life that is worthy of his name, I should try to achieve it. Scripture actually tells us that that, that, that is what worship actually is, living a life that ventures towards holiness. Romans 12, 1 through 3, it's not going to be on your screen, but this is what it says. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So let's go back then to what worship is and what our lives should look like if we do have faith in Christ. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's sacrifice, sacrifice of his son on our behalf, that mercy, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. To offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Galatians is a book that forces us to recognize Jesus plus nothing. And because of his sacrifice, we should worship him all the more. And worship isn't limited to singing. 
You know, we just had Gavin Newsom come out and say, hey, no singing allowed in church or anything like that. And for the first time in the last four months, he said something and we didn't have to change anything that we were already doing. So I was happy about that. Okay, but I actually think the church has done singing or worship a disservice by saying, hey, we are going to, why don't we stand and worship now? Because worship is a whole lot bigger than songs that we sing. It's a whole lot bigger than Spirit 88.9. It's a whole lot bigger than the songs that Kyle and the team put forth. Is that an important piece of worship? Yes, absolutely. Music is an incredibly important part of worship. But true and proper worship is us offering up our bodies as a living sacrifice. That means that we die to ourselves daily and allow God to dictate your, to, to dictate your steps and allow God to give you direction. That's what that means. And as you read through Galatians, I would encourage you to, one, continue to worship God with your life as a spiritual act of worship because even though it's Jesus plus nothing, we should continue to become sanctified, continue to become more holy as we have a relationship with him. But we would also encourage you to not take the freedoms that we all have for granted And beyond that, it's our responsibility as Christians who want to live a moral life, want to live a life that is pleasing to God. As we do those things, that we should offer it to other people as well. Because as we try to please a God who expects nothing of us in return, our act of worship should actually be a transformed life that that shares the gospel with other people. It's the single most important piece of news that the world has ever gotten. Imagine what it would look like if the church preached Jesus plus nothing to the world. Not Jesus plus nice clothes when you get to church. Not Jesus plus every social justice issue that everybody can think up ever. Not Jesus plus our style of music. Not Jesus plus our type of behavior. Just Jesus plus nothing. And that Jesus plus nothing gets you into heaven. And beyond that, it gets you into heaven and a life lived well because we become sanctified as we choose him every single day. It would be a whole lot more compelling if we as a church brought that message, the same message that Paul brings to the church in Galatia. Jesus plus nothing. And it would become a whole lot more compelling, not because the message of the Bible has changed, but because what we are communicating is that all that is expected to follow Jesus is just follow Jesus. That's what's expected. And after people have given him their life, after people have said yes, after they have been justified and put on right footing, then the Holy Spirit can work in them towards becoming holy. That's not our job. Should we encourage them? Yes. Should we have hard conversations? Yes, absolutely. But ultimately, the work of holiness and sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so it's Jesus plus nothing. And that's a hard, I mean, the world in which we live right now, it's a hard truth to come at. That it's Jesus plus nothing. But what a freeing truth for us to get at. When everybody in the entire world is telling everybody else in the entire world how it is that we're supposed to live and what it is that you're supposed to believe. I want you to be aware of the fact that Paul, an apostle of Christ, 
tells the church in Galatia and the greater church as a whole that it is Jesus plus nothing. And in recognition of that, recognition of our salvation and Christ dying on the cross, today we actually get the opportunity to partake in communion. So communion looks a little bit differently for us. If you're with us today, we got some individually packaged communion cups for you. Um, on the top, there's a clear tab. Pull that one first. Then there's a purple tab underneath that. It's not quite rocket science, but we had some trouble first service. For those of you who are joining us at home, now would be a great opportunity for you to make sure that you have the communion elements uh, in front of you and ready to go. And we're going to sing a song in just a second. I'm going to invite uh, the worship team out. Um, and we're not going to sing a song. We're going to listen to a song in a second. Um, but a couple of things we want to make you aware of. One, you don't have to be a member of FBH in order to take communion with us. Uh, but we do ask that you've made a commitment to Christ before you partake. We do ask that you are following Christ as we partake. Because this is a chance for us to commune with God regarding what he has done for all of us. So Kyle and the worship team, they're going to play through a song. And as the song plays, this would be my encouragement to you to search your heart, to commune with God, to commit this moment specifically to prayer and seeking where your relationship with God is. Reconcile things that need to be reconciled as we go to the table this morning. And as we go there, I do know that there are some of you, maybe you're in here, maybe you're joining us online who have not yet said yes to Jesus. And if that's you, I want to give you the opportunity to say yes to Jesus and then immediately afterwards partake in your first communion with us. So why don't you bow with me? Heavenly Father, God, I'm thankful. I'm choosing a posture of thankfulness in a crazy season, God. God, I'm thankful uh, for the book of Galatians, that you've preserved that for all of us. Because, God, you knew that thousands of years later, the church was still going to be dealing with it. The church was still going to be dealing with Jesus and. And our posture should be Jesus, period. So, God, I pray that you would work that into our hearts. That any preconceived notions about what it is that we have to believe God, that you would take away. And Father, for those who don't yet know you, I pray they would just pray along with me right now and say, Father, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, that I sin every single day. And I'm sorry for that, Lord. I'm broken because of that. I repent of that. And B, I, I believe, though, that you sent your Son to die on the cross for me. And I don't have to do anything else except believe in my heart and confess with my lips. That's it. You made that clear for us in the book of Romans, God. And so, Father, I believe in my heart and I confess with my lips that, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And see that I would choose to follow him every single day. God, that I would choose Jesus period that I recognize that I'm justified by faith and nothing else I'm thankful for that
It's in your son's name we pray.